0: If you missed baptism this morning, you missed a real treat. Uh, There's one amen and uh, one spiritual brother in the back there. Thank you very much. Uh, It's great. You should be on the lookout for these in the future uh, because they're really, really wonderful to come and see people and and hear them share their testimony. And um, uh, I won't single any one of them out. It's just you guys all did a great job. And uh, we so are, are so thankful to the Lord for what he's done in your lives. And, and some of you uh, saw that uh, miraculous change of heart take place since you've been at Calvary Bible Church, and that just warms my heart. And that's why we're here. That's why we do this, so that people will repent and believe and find the joy that is theirs in Christ. Well, the clock is already ticking, so can you just reset that for me, Josh? Yeah, thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. We want to be faithful to your word this morning, and so I pray, Father, that you would help us to think about these things. And Lord, for many people, these are hard things to digest and to even believe. And yet, Lord, uh, your truth stands supreme. And we bow before you, and before your word, because this is how you communicate with us. And we praise you for it, Father. Your word is clear. Your word is clear. And so we praise you for it. Thank you that we can read it and understand it in our own language. And so, Father, give us ears to hear and the ability to understand and by your grace to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you this morning to take your Bible out if you have a Bible. I hope you do have a Bible. Uh, And we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 4 of Romans. Romans chapter 4. Arriving here at chapter 4 feels like we've passed another mile marker in our long journey toward chapter 16. Uh, And it's, it's so far away, I think, that I can't even imagine it. But... I look forward with anticipation as we approach this next text. Um, And I'm confident, really, that so many of you are as well. And I hope all of you are. We've had so much good feedback from this study in Romans. I was talking to Frank Shannon about it this morning, and, and we agreed that we've heard all these things before. And yet, we need to remember. We need to be reminded. You think of the book of Deuteronomy, the theme of which is, two phrases, remember and do not forget, remember and do not forget. You know why he tells us that? (laughs) Because we tend not to remember and we tend to forget. And so it's good to dive into this over the long haul and go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So please stand with me and follow along as I read chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Romans 4, 1 through 8. Thus saith the Lord. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. But as their due. And the one the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, he says, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one, the man, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's one of our favorite psalms, right? Sinners today are reconciled to, to God in the very same way that Abraham was reconciled to God in ancient times. It hasn't changed. Over the past several months of preaching the epistle to the Romans, I've repeatedly said that one of Paul's primary goals was to help believers like you and me understand the complexities of our great salvation. And indeed, there is no denying that it is the case this is what Paul is trying to do. It is not, however, the, the only motive in Paul's mind, I think. And Paul, however, had other motives for writing this great letter as well. For example, part of the reason he wrote this letter was to offer an apology for the gospel. Now, when I say an apology, I'm not suggesting that Paul was retracting his view of salvation, nor did he feel bad about writing it. Uh, he's, he's not saying, gee, I'm so sorry for what I have written. You know, I don't, I really don't want to offend anyone. That is not the kind of apology we're talking about here. The word apology actually means to make a defense. It's It's... It's why, when we need to ask forgiveness, we don't say, I apologize. All that means is you're making a defense for what you did wrong. In this case, he's making a defense for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The Jews had a number of obje- objections to this gospel, and Paul was determined to offer a powerful and clear defense, a very powerful and clear apolog- apologetic for these objections. One such such objection that he needed to respond to was the idea that Paul's gospel was new. And if it's new, the Jews would say, it must be contrary to Scripture. And if it is contrary to Scripture, it is false and must be rejected out of hand. And their logic is correct. If it's new, it's probably false and should be rejected. Paul's response to that is, it's not new. It's not new. And we've already seen Paul respond to this, kind of in a tertiary way, back in chapter 3, verse 21, and you can just shift your eyes in that direction and see it. Chapter 3, verse 21, he writes this, but now the righteousness of God, that's shorthand for the gospel, now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although The law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the Old Testament bears witness to justification by faith. And here in chapter 4, then, Paul returns to this objection. And perhaps the believers in Rome were asking something like this. Okay, believers, maybe in my sanctified imagination, which is fallible, but I imagine them saying to Paul, Paul, Uh, When we share the gospel with our Jewish friends and neighbors, they consistently reject it because it seems new. And so how should we respond? After all, for centuries we have almost universally been taught by all of the rabbis that salvation comes to those who faithfully obey the law of Moses. You, however, teach that sinners are justified in the eyes of God by faith, apart from the works of the law. So, Paul, how should we respond? How should we respond to this objection? Well, as we might expect, Paul answers this objection and he does it powerfully and clearly. In support of his teaching, Paul calls for two witnesses. Remember in the last several sermons we've been talking about the courtroom, right? And so he's still got this courtroom motif going on and he, he's going to call in witnesses to bear witness to the fact that his gospel is not new. And so Paul calls two witnesses. The first one he calls is Moses. And the second witness he calls for is Abraham. Uh, excuse me, David. And you'll see why I'm, I'm getting confused here in just a second. Uh, Moses is the first And Moses is going to give us testimony about Abraham. And then the second witness he brings in is David. So let me just clarify, Moses and David are the two. Now I'm saying that because I pretty much muddied the waters, right? And were we talking about Moses, Abraham, or who? So let's talk about the testimony of Moses. Notice with me Paul's words in verse 1 of chapter 4. He writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Now in order to understand Paul's question here, we have to glance backwards at verse 27 of chapter 3. Paul initiates the question, and here it is, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, if, you, if you're given to writing or marking in your Bible, just circle the word boasting. Because it's, a, it's an interpretive clue at the end of chapter 3 for what Paul is saying now in, in chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, now in, in chapter 4. So he says this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now this is the issue Paul is wrestling with. Namely, that the justification that God offers leaves no room for boasting. Um, That's at the end of chapter 3. There is no room for boasting because... It has nothing to do with self-effort or obedience to the law or any kind of of achievable merit. And if you can do anything to earn or deserve a right standing with God, then you would have something to boast about, but you don't. Because that's not how you got it. When we come to chapter 4, then Paul Is still running with that same thought. But now, instead of attempting to convince people by the sheer force of argument, he brings in witnesses. Moses and David. Now, as I kind of mentioned a minute ago, you may look at this and say, well, is it really Moses? Because it says, the text says Abraham. And uh, the thing we need to remember here is that we need to remember that nearly everything we know about Abraham comes to us through Moses. Abraham didn't write about himself. Moses did. And certainly Abraham was perhaps the most revered of all of the ancestors of the children of Israel. But it's hard to say that Moses takes second place. I mean, he's appealing to both here. And and he's doing it to Jews, right? So we need to remember that nearly everything that we know about Abraham came through Moses in the book of Genesis. And when you think about it, this was a really strategic move on the part of the Apostle Paul, because if he can demonstrate that Moses and Abraham believed in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, without the law, He wins. The debate's over. After all, Moses is the one through whom the law came to Israel. Moreover, Abraham was considered the father of the nation. In fact, in Jesus' day, we see this bear out. The uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders, were always telling Jesus, We're sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. We don't know who you are, but we are sons of Abraham. In John 8, verses 39 and 40, for example, I'll just give you a taste of it. And They were answering him, that is, they were answering Jesus and saying, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the things of Abraham. But you were not doing them. Matthew 3, verse 9, and Jesus says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, because they were so prone to say to themselves, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. God doesn't need you. And he doesn't even accept you, except on his terms. And it's not what you think. You see, as Israel's ancestor, Abraham was regarded as the ultimate model of their faith. And so Paul begins this chapter in a way that seems to say, if you want to demonstrate that my gospel is not new, then we should call for the testimony of Abraham, because he was saved the same way we are. It is by faith. And so that's what Paul does. He writes, what shall we say? No, it's interesting, just as kind of a side note here, that in ancient times, scholars and debaters used that phrase, what shall we say, in kind of formal conversation or formal written debates as a rhetorical device indicating a transition of the argument. And that's what Paul is doing. In fact, Paul makes use of this uh, very well-known statement, this phrase, six times in chapter 6 verse 1 and again I'll just give you a sample Uh, chapter 6 verse 1 you remember these words what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace should abound or chapter 7 verse 7 what shall we say that the law is sin he's transitioning into the next topic the next topic the next topic and it all builds as another argument. Or how about this famous statement, Romans 8, 30, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? Now, this is not a, a terribly important observation, but it does confirm that Paul is in somewhat of a debate. It is a polemic that he's offering uh, perhaps although scholars argue about this and you don't need to care about it but it it comes across like a diatribe like a like a letter of argument that like Martin Luther would write to his opponents the catholic opponents and so this is very clearly a polemic and and again the atmosphere or the setting that he's displaying for us is a courtroom so he's writing a polemic, a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of justification by faith alone. And what could be more important than that, right? What can be more important than defending the gospel? I don't know about you, but I praise God for some of the men he has raised up, even in our generation. It seems like in every generation there are a few men who take the lead in this regard, And praise God for men like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and John Piper and Paul Washer and Steve Lawson and, and a whole list of other men who have who've given their lives for the defense of the gospel and the distribution of the gospel. And frankly, my brothers and sisters, we need more of them. We need more bold men who will proclaim the truth of the word of God without wavering. And my hope, frankly, is that some of those men would come from Calvary Bible Church. Well, we pray to that end. In any case, Paul writes, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, what did he gain as a ground of boasting? There's that word again relative to his right standing with God. now we should note here that the Apostle Paul is not tiptoeing around hoping to not make anybody mad. I mean, rather, he drives headlong into the hornet's nests. Uh, Yesterday, or the day before, I was doing some work around the house, and I had a pickaxe in my hand. And I came around the corner of the house, and I look into this uh, greenery on the ground, this ground cover, and I noticed a strange thing. There was was something there that was different. It kind of looked like paper, but it had a perfectly round hole in the middle of it. And I thought, I wonder what that is. And so I turned my pickaxe around and dropped it into the hole. (laughs) And then ran for my life as the hornets came out. And this is what Paul, the apostle, did. He kind of went into synagogue after synagogue with his pickaxe, and he just kind of dropped it into the hole. He is not, he is not uh, playing around with these guys. He goes right after it. And he goes in, and he attacks the prop- proponents of works righteousness at the very fortress in which the, they deem themselves to be the authorities where they think they are the strongest, namely, the character of Abraham, the story of Abraham, the theology of Abraham. That great patriarch who, according to their way of thinking, had earned his way into right standing with God. And honestly, Paul could have taken a kinder, gentler path if he had just skipped chapter 4 and went from the last word of chapter 3 and just jumped over to the first words of chapter 5? I mean, why do we need chapter 4? I mean, look at verse, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. He could have easily just skipped from that last word, uh, verse 31 of, uh, of chapter 3, where he says, "'Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, to the contrary, we uphold the law.'" Switch over to chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just keep going. Oh, no, 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 no. He's going to drop the pickaxe in the hornet's nest. And so he does. He's already explained the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from the law. Nevertheless, this, this isn't Paul's way. When Paul saw... That an influential people or group of people, even if they were fellow apostles, read Galatians, and they were causing confusion about the gospel, he just went after them and almost died many times. So, to put this another way, Paul is determined to destroy arguments, 2 Corinthians 10. Destroy arguments and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Can I just tell you something about that text? It it gets misused a lot. Um, People use this text to mean all kinds of things. But Paul is talking about teaching that is designed to undermine the gospel. It is for this reason that he calls for the testimony of Moses regarding Abraham. Verse 2 reads For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something, and this time it's actually in the text, he has something to boast about. There's that word boast again. And what I am arguing is that at the end of chapter 3, when he's talking about boasting, This demonstrates that he's on the same wavelength as he was in the previous chapter. And in case you didn't know, and maybe you all already know this, but the chapter titles and the chapter numbers, none of that is inspired. It wasn't written that way. It was written to help us so that we could talk about these things quickly. We could find those passages very quickly. But it's unfortunate sometimes when it looks like there's a break of thought. And if you try to interpret that way, you get confused. In this case, we need to remember that Paul was talking about boasting already, and now here he is talking about it again. We have no reason for boasting. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Now, that is always a relevant question. I mean, ladies, I know you're all doing... Hermeneutics and, uh, and praise God for that. We need everybody to be doing that course or one like it, so you can better understand the text and interpret the text rightly. And one of the first questions you have to ask when you're interpreting a scripture is, what does the scripture say? I mean, what does it really say? That's why observation of a text is so important, that you observe carefully what the words are and how they're lined up and how they relate to one another. And so Paul says, what does the scripture say? This is very similar to Jesus saying to the Pharisees, have you not read? Have you not read? And for the most part, the answer is, well, we read it, we just weren't paying attention to it. For what does the Scripture say? Now pay attention to this phrase. What does the Scripture say? This should be instructive for us because apparently generation after generation of Jewish teachers had taught God's people that the way to gain right standing with God was by law-keeping. And Paul implies that the reason they taught such error was because they were so busy listening to one another that they didn't take the time to carefully examine the text. It's as if the Jews were saying, listen, Paul, everyone knows that the only way anyone can be declared righteous in the sight of God is to live a life of obedience to the law, to which Paul retorts, really? Well, let me ask you a question. What does the scripture actually say? Show me your text, because I have a text. And uh, no doubt they had the same text from the book of Genesis. They just didn't know what to make of it, or they just glossed over it. Or they do, maybe did like we often do when we're reading like out of uh, Jeremiah or Nahum. And you, you read it and you go, oh, I wonder what that was about. Keep reading. Just keep reading. I think we would benefit from a short pause here at this point to consider the phrase, what does the Scripture say? I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say, what, the, what did the Scripture what did the scriptures say, but what does the Scripture say? Say, It's not like we have many, many, many scriptures. It's not like we have documents scattered all over the world. We have the scripture, singular. And notice too, and I'm making observations. We just talked about making observations. Here's some observations. It's scripture, singular. And notice that it says, what did, past tense, what did the scriptures say? And then for you E4M guys, right? You E4M guys, are you paying attention? You can talk about this tonight in E4M. The word say is in the present active indicative. It's happening right now. What's happening right now? The scripture is saying things. The scripture is speaking The word of God was speaking to Moses. In Moses' day, it was speaking in Paul's day. It is speaking today. Now, let me give a caveat on that. If your approach to the scripture is like this, Mm. Lord, Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ah, and you read one verse and you make application to your life, Believe me, as a pastor, I've heard the strangest things that people have come up with. Uh, I I knew a a couple who wanted a piece of property, and uh, they found one, and uh, they weren't sure they could afford it. There were some obstacles. They opened the Bible to Joshua. They laid out the plat of the property on their island in their kitchen. They got the family, and they circled it literally walking around it seven times and blew trumpets because the Word of God said that they should do that. That's not what the Word of God said, I assure you. (laughs) Wayne Mack calls this lucky dipping. You just close your eyes and wherever your finger lands. Beloved, that is not how the Word of God speaks. The Word of God speaks through language, And through the normal rules of language, you interpret the scriptures the way you would interpret any book, for the most part. Except that this book happens to be divine. It happens to be a book that is inspired by God. And so the, the Bible speaks to us today. If we have ears to hear and hearts to receive what the Spirit says To his people. You know, people joke about how pastors, you know, uh, how was your week this week? I know you only work on Sundays, right? (laughs) You ever wonder what we do the other days of the week? We're studying this book. We're reading this book. We're digging into the language of this book, the culture of this book, each passage, so that we can understand it rightly. Because listen carefully, the meaning of the scripture is the scripture. It is the scripture. So, what does the scripture say about how Abraham was justified in the eyes of God? That's his question. Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses wrote, chapter or or verse 3, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, he was declared by God to be right by God. And it was by faith he believed. In other words, he was justified by faith alone. And I insert the word alone here because in Abraham's day, the law had not even been written. There was no law of God. There was no written law of God in Abraham's day. It, wasn't, it was impossible for a man to be justified by the law of God because in Abraham's day, it didn't exist. And this is why in, Paul says in Galatians 3.17, he writes this, this word, he says, This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not nullify a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make its promise void. Now, I don't want to instruct the Apostle Paul, but I wonder why he didn't use that here in Romans. It's a great argument. 430 years went by before the law came around. And so, my Jewish friend, why do you think that Abraham was justified by law? Now, the one who works, here's what he said in verse 4. Notice what Paul says. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as their due. We talked about that a little bit last week because Paul was talking about it. When you work on your job at the end of the week, you get paid. You don't think that's grace. You don't think that's a gift. You earned every penny of that. Now, Paul uses the word counted here a number of times. And so in, in this verse as well. Now, the one who works for his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. Now, the word count or counted is a really important word in this text and in this doctrine. In the Greek it's the word logizomai. And by my count it's used four times in this short passage. It's used 11 times in this chapter. And a moment ago, we read that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted is a bookkeeping term. It was actually an ancient banking term. It was a business term that was used in business documents for crediting payment to one's account. And sometimes it's translated in other Bible versions as reckoned or imputed. This is an important term here. And this is why Paul keeps referring to it as a gift. The important thing to see here is that righteousness was not earned by self-effort or law-keeping. Rather, it was counted, or it was imputed, or it was reckoned to him as a gift from God. God. Received by faith. Faith is not a pre-salvific work. It is simply the empty hand that accepts or receives the gift of God. And all of this is grounded in the testimony of Moses about Abraham. So what is that testimony? Well, you may remember in Genesis 15... In that whole context there, Abraham had defeated certain kings who were against him. In Genesis 14, we find Abraham wondering if those kings were going to come back and attack him and his family, his people, his growing family, his tribe. He was concerned about that. And in the midst of that, God appears to him. And God says to him, Abraham, I am your shield your exceedingly great reward. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Thomas Watson Watson has a sermon called Why or or How, How God is His People's Great Reward. But I won't chase that rabbit. The thing that Abraham wanted most of all, however, was not uh, land, although he was certainly collecting land. You know what he wanted? He wanted a son. He wanted a son. In fact, the Lord had already promised him a son long, long time ago. But as yet, the promise had not been fulfilled. And here's God, he comes and he says, uh, you know, I'm your shield, don't worry. I'm your exceeding great reward. And and it's as if Abraham says, that's, that's wonderful, Lord, but what about the son? He promised a son, and we're getting old. By then, they've gotten old. In fact, I would argue that God intentionally waited until they were way too old to have a child. It was then, at just the right time, God told him these words, He says, Abraham, look at the stars. Look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. And the text says, And Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There was no works, there was no religious forms. There was no law to obey. It was just God coming to sinful Abraham and saying, Abraham, I made you a promise. And I'm here to tell you that I have not forgotten that promise. Do you trust me? And Abraham believed. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, the word translated believe means to say amen. God gave a promise to Abraham And Abraham responded with, Amen, Lord. Let it be. It was his faith. It was this faith that was counted for righteousness. It was not a pre salvific work. He just trusted in the Lord. And the Lord, though that is not intrinsically valuable, the Lord gave the gift of justification. We could just as well say it like this. Abraham believed and God declared him righteous as an unmerited gift apart from any works. Righteousness was not earned by the self-effort of law-keeping. Rather, it was counted or imputed or reckoned as a gift from God. And Moses simply received that by faith. And I think it's, it's even more beautiful in the Hebrew when he just said, amen, amen. And Paul summarizes then with these words in verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. I mean, what could be more welcome news to a sinner than that God justifies by faith, not by works of the law? And that's why Paul calls calls this message the gospel. Could there ever have been Anything that was more like good news. But the news gets even better when we consider the identity of the only one who can receive the grace of justification. So who is it who can receive the grace of justification? And there's a, there's a narrow kind of window here. At least it's not all inclusive. Notice what Paul says. Paul says simply, he calls them the ungodly. They are the only ones who can receive this gift. The ungodly. Now what I should have done before saying that, and I just thought of it now, is I I should have asked you to raise your hand if you think you're godly. Then we would know who is excluded from this. He's saying the only people to whom this promise applies, are the ungodly. Uh, That's staggering, isn't it? So consider Abraham himself. The Jews considered him the ultimate paragon of righteousness. But you would only think that if you skimmed over the story of Abraham. I mean, if you're looking at the text and drinking in what it's actually saying, you're not going to come away thinking Abraham was Mr. Righteousness. No, no, no. Where was he from? He was from Ur of the Chaldees. You know what that place is known for? It's known as the location of where the Tower of Babel was. He's a descendant of those who rebelled against God by trying to make a tower that extended to heaven. In rebellion against the Lord, and here he comes out of Chalde, out of Chaldea. and you know what? You know what he is? He's an idolater, like his fathers. They were idol worshippers. His ancestors were descendants of those who rebelled against God and worshiped idols. And consider who Abraham was, even after God called him out of that land. And some of the sins that he committed are probably not appropriate to talk about in mixed company. I would point you, however, to the way he treated his wife. Maybe the only word I can think of is human trafficking. In order to save his own skin at a time when there, no one was threatening him. But he was afraid that somebody would threaten him, namely the local king. And so he told his wife, listen, tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. Yeah, but what happens to her? She gets drawn into the harem or what? I mean, this was wickedness. They talk about faithlessness. This was a horrific thing that he imposed upon his wife. And he almost lost her. If it weren't for God's intervention and, and uh, plaguing that king, he would have lost his wife. And she may have lost her life. This was a gross sin. And it proved that though Abraham was a blessed man, that Abraham was a wealthy man, Abraham was an influential man, he was often a godless man. He was, in Paul's words, ungodly. And I suspect there are people who hear my voice right now. In your heart of hearts, you're saying, that's me. I mean, here I am at church, and I know in my heart that I am an ungodly man. And I would say, dear friend, the gospel It's for you. It will only work for you. You have to see yourself as ungodly or the gospel will have no power. Thanks be to God that the Lord of all the earth desires to be known as him who justifies the ungodly. And Charles Spurgeon, I've been waiting for years to be able to read this to you. Had to wait till Romans chapter 4. And love this. Pick up, uh, there's a small volume of uh, uh, the works of, you can get this on Kindle, uh, works of Charles Spurgeon. And you may even be able to purchase a hard copy of one of the sermons in that little book. And it's called All of Grace. Uh, the book is called All of, All of Grace. And um, here's what Spurgeon says. Just, just relax, close your eyes, think about what he is saying. The sinner is the gospel's reason for existence. You, my friend, to whom this word now comes, if you are undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-discerning, you are the sort of person for whom the gospel is ordained and arranged and proclaimed. God justifies the ungodly. The gospel will receive you into its halls, If you come as a sinner, not otherwise, wait not for reformation, but come at once for salvation. God justifies the ungodly, and that takes you up where you are right now. It meets you in your worst estate. Come, come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus Just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you who are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come, and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not... Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text. I cannot put it more strongly than the text. For the Lord God himself takes to himself this gracious title, him who justifies the ungodly. Amen. Oh, my friend. The only reason Abraham was declared right in the eyes of God is because God justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted, is reckoned as righteousness, as a free gift received by the empty hand of humble faith. This is the testimony of Moses about Abraham. This is his testimony. And I just hit 45 minutes. Do I have five more? Thank you. I'll take it. (laughs) The testimony of David. And Paul makes this very brief, so I'll make it very brief. Paul mentions this as another witness to justification by faith alone. Paul writes... Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So we've had Moses, we've had Abraham, now we have Israel's greatest king. Where does David David say such a thing? Well, in one of our most beloved Psalms. If you know that you struggle with sin... Even as a believer, and sometimes feel enslaved by sin, even as a believer, Psalm 32 is precious to us. And here's what it says, just verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It means you're open and honest about your sin. I think if I had been a Jew in Paul's time and had received this letter or was standing head-to-head against him in debate, I would simply bow my head in defeat. Why? Because to continue taking one stand that justification in the eyes of God is by obedience to the works of the law, is to take one stand in a way that has nothing to do with David, nothing to do with Abraham, nothing to do with Moses, because each of the three of them knew something that we often forget, and the Jews perhaps never knew or were willing to accept that God justifies the ungodly and righteousness is credited not on the basis of merit and effort but on faith alone. My friend, perhaps you've returned again and again to this chapel and have repeatedly heard about the abundant grace of God but you have yet to respond from the heart. After hearing this message today, how can you turn your back on this invitation For another day, another hour, another moment. I mean, after the service, you should come running to the front, asking the elders to speak with you. And we will gladly. You have no promise of another day. Why not come to him with all humility, renounce any godliness or any goodness or any righteousness of your own, and fly to Christ who will freely expunge all your sins Declare you right with God for his great glory and for your own eternal joy. Beloved sinners, today are reconciled to God the same way Abraham was reconciled to God by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord, these things are too high and we cannot attain them. They are more marvelous than we can comprehend and certainly more fantastic than this stammering preacher can present. And oh, Father, send your Spirit to do what I cannot do and no man can do. Pray, Father, that you would rescue and fill with delight those who have this very morning discovered that God is His people's great reward. Sinners become God's people. By grace, through faith, because of Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Thank you, Father. Bless you. Praise your name. Amen.